welcome you to, to join in and celebrate Advent with us this year. Um, one of the great parts about renting space from an Elks Lodge is that they deck this place out with Christmas stuff, and we don't have to do that. Uh, they do that for us. So if you can tolerate the Elks, come Christmas time every year, it pays off. It pays off when it comes around. Uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I should probably introduce myself. Uh, my name is Matt Luloyan. Uh, I'm the pastor of Liberty Church here in Harrisburg. It's my privilege to also welcome you. Uh, for whatever reason you find yourself here today, we just are honored that you would choose to, to spend some of your, your Sunday with us. We're uh, finishing up our series in Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 1 through 21 today. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 978 is where that's, that's found. In uh, 1990, going back a few years, uh, Robin Williams starred in one of his rare non-comedic roles in a film called Awakenings. Anybody seen the movie Awakenings? A few, a few hands out there. Um, he plays Dr. Malcolm Sayer, who's a neurologist in a psychiatric hospital in the Bronx. And he's given the responsibility to care for a handful of catatonic patients. Uh, one of those patients is played by Robert De Niro. And De Niro's character is a, is a grown man, but who, as a young child, slipped into a catatonic state and has since not spoken to anyone and not really done anything except the basic functions of, of life. Dr. Sayer, Robin Williams' character, is given permission, and so he tries out this experimental drug on several of his patients, including, including Robert De Niro. And the drug works. And what ensues from that is that this man, this patient, who has been essentially in a coma for decades of his life, begins to experience all that life has to offer, really for the first time. He begins to experience life. And because it's all so new, and because he doesn't take any of it for granted, because it's the first time for him to experience it, he brings this joy and this exuberance and this appreciation into everything. And he does that so much so that it propels a different kind of awakening in Dr. Sayer himself. That's a little bit of the, the play on, on the title there. The, the question is kind of like, who's really awakening whom in, in this story? Because on the one hand, you've got this medical professional who administers this drug, and this man in a coma comes, comes alive again. But on the other hand, his coming alive and his appreciating life wakes up Dr. Sayer to what he misses in the mundane and the menial uh, of his life. And the reason that that story resonates so much with me, and that I'm sure it resonates with, with many of you, is because even if we aren't in a physical coma, we are prone, I think, to live a functionally catatonic life. We're prone to live a functionally catatonic life. We are like Dr. Sayer, many of us. We become, really, we can become dull to life in every, in every respect. So we become dull to the, to the beauty of life. And on the other hand, we also become dull and calloused to the corruptions and to the perversions of that beauty. To, to put Christian terminology to that, we become dull to both the glory and the majesty of God on one hand and dull to sin on the other. And that results in really this functionally catatonic kind of life where we become desensitized to all of it, to everything. So we have this need in us to be woken up. And that's, that's for sure true once, initially, what we might also call salvation. Another kind of way to look, about, look at salvation or think about salvation would be to wake up from sleep. 
But not only that initial salvation waking up, we need to be woken up over and over again. The natural gravitation of the human heart is not toward wakefulness. It's not toward being alert. It's actually toward sleepiness and toward callousness. And that's why sin so easily entangles. And that's why sin is so deceitful. Rarely, rarely do we sin because we're ignorant of the consequences. Like most of us have have experienced enough of that. Some of us are very painfully aware of the consequences that result when we reject God, when we stiff-arm God and say, I'm going my own way. And I think even beyond that, most of us deep down know experientially that there is something more and that there is something better than rejecting and stiff-arming God and and the sin that, that that is. So it's not that we're unaware. It's not that we're ignorant. It's actually that we're unawake. In these last two weeks in our series in Ephesians that we're picking up in today, we're going to look at this this portion of Paul's letter today in Ephesians chapter 5. And the Apostle Paul here is going to call these men and women in Ephesus to wake up. Really, to, to not be deceived and to not be desensitized or lulled to sleep by their own passions and by the world that, that, that they inhabit. And I, I think this will be immediately clear as we start to read this. These words that Paul wrote so many centuries ago are just as relevant and just as timely for us today as they were to the, the original audience, the original hearers of these words. So let's read through uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. You can follow along with me uh, as I read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you that you put in the minds and the hearts of your apostles, those who, who you founded the church upon, that you put within them by your Spirit these, these words that they have written down for us and for our good and for our benefit. And I pray that we would learn from them today. Thank you for, for both the, the mercy that you have extended us in Jesus and thank you for the bluntness of the warnings that Paul offers in these words. I pray that we would, that we would truly hear them, that you would give us ears to hear, that our ears to hear your word would, would be deeper, would, would transcend our modern sensibilities where it, where it irritates us, where it makes us uncomfortable. Would you help us to truly hear and believe and come to more and more know who you are and to follow you. And I pray all this in your name. Amen. So you've heard this for a couple weeks now. The, the, the operative word in the second half of this letter is the word walk. We're, we're to walk worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ. And what Paul means when he says that a couple chapters back in Ephesians 4 is that those who trust in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they've been given this new identity. They're new creations in Christ. They're united with him. And then in light of that new identity, they walk accordingly. They walk worthy of that calling. In this particular passage in Ephesians 5, we see then three specific ways that we're called to wakeful walking. I'm going to use that phrase, wakeful walking. So three different parts to that. We're to walk in love, we're to walk in light, and we're to walk in wisdom. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. So first, let's talk about walking in love. It's really important that we always connect the directives, the commands of Scripture, with the power and the motivation to actually carry them out. And you'll hear in, this, in these words, Paul weaves in and out of those, back and forth all the time. So he begins by saying, be imitators of God. Imitate your Father. Imitate your Heavenly Father. Be like Him. But that is sandwiched between him saying, therefore, and going back to remind them of the forgiveness that they've already received in Christ, and by being called children of God. And the idea there is that we can be imitators of God only because in Christ we've already been forgiven, we've already been called His children. Likewise, when we're commanded to walk in love, what we're doing when we walk in love is walking in the same exact love that we ourselves have received. So the only possible reason that we can begin to imitate God, the only possible reason we can begin to walk in love is because Jesus has loved us that way. And that's where we just, we can pause right there. Because if you want to think about or talk about something that we are functionally catatonic to throughout most of the moments of our lives, it is the love of God demonstrated in the fragrant offering of Jesus. Most of the moments of our lives, we are just painfully unaware of that. Because if our eyes were, were truly fixed on the love of God offered to us in Christ, if that was really what was before us in every single moment of our lives, we would need no other direction or instruction in our lives. Every priority, every relationship, every interaction, every thought, every word, every deed would fall in line if that were truly 
the fix of our eyes, the gaze of our eyes. But of course, and, and you know this as well as I do, we don't clearly perceive the love of God all of the time. We forget. We forget just how much we need Jesus to give of himself for us. And we suppress, we suppress the holiness and the perfection of God, which requires this fragrant offering, this sacrifice of Jesus. And consequently then, rather than, than walking in love and walking in the same kind of love that we ourselves have received, we're prone to walk instead in perversions and corruptions of that love. And that's where Paul really spends most of his time when he talks about this, not about the love itself, but about the corruptions and perversions of it. One of the most concrete and common perversions of love is lust. And Paul here uses these three words, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And together, what he's going for there, he's trying to create a really broad, broad-based definition of sexual sin. It's actually really a good thing, in my opinion, that Paul uses these broader terms rather than making like a comprehensive list of all of the different specific actions that he means here. Because if he were just to include a list, the nature of our hearts would be just to keep inventing new things that weren't explicitly spelled out in the list. One of the reformers, John Calvin, uh, described the human heart as a factory of idols. And I think that's a very vivid and apt description of our hearts. Like, we are prone to create new forms of evil. So if one thing is explicitly ruled out, we'll just come up with another one and find a way to rationalize that. So instead, by staying broader, Paul actually forces us here to the main point of what he's trying to say, which is to experience the love of God and then to walk in that love toward one another. So rather than take advantage of each other, rather than demean each other, specifically in this physical, sexual way, we are to love. And, and Paul staying broad here is going to force us to ask not just what's permissible, like what can we do? That's, that's an okay question, right? That's a, that's a decent question, I suppose. A far better question is what does it look like to walk in love in our sexuality? What does it actually look like to walk in the love of God in our sexuality? And the answer, from other, from other letters that Paul writes, really from the whole counsel of God in Scripture, is that God has specifically designed sexual expression for a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. So, sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness would summarize, really, everything else that happens outside of that. But not only that, and this is an important part, this gets skipped over so much, but it's really essential to this too. It also summarizes the corruptions and the perversions that happen in our sexuality within a marriage. So it's not just that like you get married and now you're, you're good to go and your corruptions and your perversions don't, don't influence you anymore. There is a redeemed outlet for sexual expression in, in marriage, but it doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden free of the corruptions and perversions of sexual sin that you brought in to that marriage. So, I want to be helpful to you. I want to be just incredibly clear about this. One example of sexual morality or impurity would be sexual activity between people of the same gender. Homosexual activity would be one example of this. And I think we are at risk in our day of becoming desensitized to that. That's a, it's a topic that we hear all the time in culture. It's something we can become desensitized to. But let me also be really equally clear about this. There are a ton of other kinds of sexual sin and sexual 
corruptions, perversions, that we've already been desensitized to for decades. And that's actually the deceitful part. We've been so desensitized to them, we're not even on our radar anymore. So, if your particular kind of sexual sin and your kind of brokenness isn't in a homosexual orientation, that doesn't give you a free pass to avoid looking in the mirror and seeing how your own heterosexual orientation is also filled with perversions and corruptions and and impurities, as Paul would would say here. And theologically conservative Christians, among whom I would identify, I suppose, um, can far too quickly lament how desensitized our culture has become to sexual sin while really being catatonic to our own. And we've got to wake up. We've got to wake up. The point is not to, to jockey for which one's worse than the other. The point is not to become desensitized to any of it. So whatever particular sexual morality you're prone to act out on, we all need to wake up to the love of God in Christ. Because when we wake up to that, we become resensitized to all kinds of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. Not just the select few. And because actually we're a lot more likely to become callous toward our own sins, the kinds that we ourselves struggle with, we'll actually wake up with a deeper sensitivity most often to our own sins rather than becoming preoccupied with everybody else's. And the reality is if we're really fixated on the sexual sin of other people, it's almost positively because we've gone comatose to some of our own. Walking in love isn't just about the action and the expression of sexuality. It's also about our words. And so Paul highlights another area where we're really prone to be lulled to sleep in this. He talks about foolish talk and filthiness or crude joking. There's a lot that could really fit under under that umbrella as he talks about that. The context seems to indicate that he's talking specifically about crude joking or foolish talk about sex itself. What we might kind of call locker room talk. For most of us, I think it's easy to treat this as like completely separate. And really one being important, maybe one not not as important. Like acting, acting out in our sexuality feels like a big deal, but maybe foolish talk or crude joking doesn't really feel like a big deal. It's just words, after all, right? What's the big deal about that? But here's the connection. And again, it's meant to drive us to consider the big picture of God's love for us and what it looks like to walk in that love. The big picture is that sex is a good gift from God. It's a good gift from God. It's not gross. It's not something to be viewed as, as dirty or something to be viewed as a necessary evil that's solely for procreation and the survival of a species, when it's used in the way that God has designed it, it's a tangible and incredibly intimate way that we walk in love toward one another. So to to joke about that, to talk about that foolishly or with filthiness, really makes light of sex. It demeans sex. It tears down sex. And instead of that, Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. And it's like, how does thanksgiving the opposite of crude joking? It doesn't even seem like those are maybe related. But it's related because thanksgiving recognizes and honors sex as the good gift that it is. It holds up sex as an opportunity to embody the love of God. Sex is far from this just merely common or crass kind of bodily craving, bodily urge. It's really one of the most tangible ways we can walk in love toward one another. 
So there's this unbreakable connection here between how we think about sex, how we talk about sex, and then how we act out our sexuality. And all three of them are meant to be grounded in God's love for us as we walk in love toward one another. So that's walking in love. Second, the Apostle Paul tells us to walk in light. As he's done earlier in this letter, Paul paints this this really stark contrast between light and darkness. And he includes here some really weighty and sobering reminders of what darkness entails. Darkness for us is a metaphor that we understand in our culture, but I don't think near as much as this culture did. We have electricity and lights. We do lots of work at night. Like the day, the, the, the sun setting doesn't really change much of our schedule, to be honest. We can still do things into the night. This culture, when the sun went down, it really was dark, unless they made a fire. And so that metaphor was a lot more vivid than I think it is for us. So Paul here has these reminders of what exactly darkness entails. And it entails eternal separation from God, and it entails for those who remain in darkness to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. You may be sure of this, Paul says, that the sexually immoral or impure or those who covet have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, again, here's what Paul's driving at. We have to wake up. We have to wake up. These are the highest of stakes. The highest of stakes. The difference between inclusion and exclusion from God's eternal kingdom. Okay, and it's not, Paul's not saying here that anyone who has ever committed these sins is excluded from God's kingdom. If that were the case, heaven would be empty but for Jesus, right? Heaven would be empty except for Jesus. Instead, what he's saying here is that those who persist in these things unrepentantly, those who do not seek the mercy of Jesus to forgive them, to rescue them, they are the ones that have no inheritance in God's kingdom. Paul calls them sons of disobedience. And to be described as a child of something or someone is to be identified with that. So a son of disobedience is someone who lives in disobedience. They've inherited disobedience. That's That's their family identity. And they are those who willfully persist in sin. And and Paul says here, judgment for them apart from God's mercy actually means they receive God's wrath. Okay, Some of us are already like really uncomfortable with that. And And I understand that. But I think we need the bluntness of these words that Paul includes here in Ephesians 5. Because they're meant to be a wake up call. They really are there for that purpose. They're meant to be a wake up call. The wrath of God who that 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 comes on people who persist in sin and their exclusion from the kingdom of God, those concepts will really offend every modern sensibility that we have in our being. They will offend every sensibility, modern sensibility you and I have in our being. Because nearly every fiber of of our cultural fabric resists the idea that God has any wrath at all. So in your desire, and some of you I know have experienced this recently or, or experiencing right now, in your desire to understand who Jesus is and to understand what it looks like to follow him and what scripture teaches about him, you will try to find a way around this. You will try to find a way around this. If you haven't already wrestled with this deeply, I promise you it's coming. You will wrestle with this. Because if you have any intellectual integrity at all, you're going to have to wrestle to somehow reconcile God's love and his mercy on one hand with God's wrath on the other. And that's never meant to be something that's just easy for us to grasp. 
I think if it's easy, it's probably because we've not actually appropriated just how much love and mercy God has for people and how much he is for his people. We just have, we just have ignored that. But I, but I think actually more the error that we're prone to make in our days to become desensitized to the wrath of God and to reduce God merely to the expressions of his love or his mercy and reject the expressions of his wrath. So Paul's warning here really rings as true today as it ever has in the history of the church. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So don't let a, a cultural emphasis on tolerance, which, is, which has many great aspects to it, but don't let that deceive you into thinking that God is tolerant of sin. And don't let the pendulum swing that's happened in the past couple centuries in our church against what I might call hellfire and brimstone preaching. I'm glad that that's not like all you hear from pulpits anymore, like maybe it was a couple centuries ago. But don't let the pendulum swing reaction to that deceive you into thinking that God no longer has wrath towards sin. It's the reasoning of like a toddler that says maybe if we don't talk about it, it won't exist anymore. Or maybe if we don't see it, it's not really there anymore. One of the most deceitful places to hear this is actually from other Christians. And I think it's out of a good desire and a good intent as they, as they wrestle to reconcile God's love with God's wrath. In that good intent, they end up doing away with God's wrath altogether. And let me just plead with you as your pastor who has an opportunity to say this to you. Don't let empty words deceive you. Don't let your modern sensibilities, the culture in which you were born, in which we live... Or don't let your struggle to comprehend how these two, these two seemingly disparate things connect, don't let that lead you to neglect what we see in places like this, these warnings about the wrath of God and the coming judgment of God. I'm really grateful for the tone that I hear in much of the church today, which really talks about the grace and the mercy of God and, and reminds us over and over again that God's grace is an unending well. We need that emphasis. I need that in my own life. I will proclaim the mercy and grace of God till I die. But we're not meant to become desensitized to God's wrath as a byproduct of rejoicing in his mercy. Actually, sensitivity to the wrath of God will actually make more and more the love of God and the mercy of God. It will make it more beautiful, more necessary, more astonishing. At the end of the day, if you minimize one of these, you, you inevitably minimize the other. If you minimize the wrath of God towards sin, you minimize how amazing his love and his mercy is. Other, or, if you maximize what wrath against sin would look like, then you maximize, likewise, the, the mercy and love of God towards sinners. And this is why Paul immediately reminds them, this isn't just like theoretical for everybody else. This was you. This was once you. You were darkness. Not in darkness, you were darkness. You were among the sons of disobedience, but now, because of the love and the mercy of God, now you are light in the Lord. So for a Christian, there's, there's an identity change that's happened here, from darkness to light. And it really fundamentally changes our relationship to the darkness. We once were darkness. We were, we were the, part, the partakers of darkness, participating in darkness. Now, Walking in light, we don't partake in that anymore. Instead, we bear the fruit of light. All that is good, all that is right, all that is true. 
Paul says. Instead, we, we discern and do what is pleasing to God, not pleasing to other people, not pleasing even to ourselves. Instead, rather than partaking in the darkness, we expose what's dark in the world. Why? Why do we expose what is dark in the world? So we can self-righteously talk about how much better we are than everybody else? There is no room for that if you remember the depth from which you have been rescued. There's no room for that. Now, we, we walk in light and we expose what is dark so that the dark itself might become light. We want other people. And if we recognize how, from what we've been rescued, we want other people very passionately and deeply to become what we have become through Jesus. We want them to see that Jesus has changed us and has given us a new way. And to partake in the darkness when we are called to be light gives them no visible alternative. Gives people no visible alternative to what life could be. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. And just as Jesus was sent as light into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. We're going to celebrate that a lot in Advent here in a couple weeks. Just as he did that, he sends his people as light into the darkness. And it not only pushes back what is dark in the world, it actually transforms some of what is dark into light itself. What becomes visible becomes light, is what Paul is saying there. And here's what I love. The text crescendos to this chorus in verse 14, which most scholars think is borrowed from an early Easter or a baptism hymn. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I want to I make sure that we see in this that this is two things. It's an account and it's an appeal. That, that little hymn, that little crescendo, it's an account and it's an appeal. It's an account of our own lives. So we were the sleepers who have been awakened. We were the dead who have been raised. We are the ones whom Christ has shined on. And we need Him to continue to shine, to continue to make us wakeful so that we don't slip into this functional coma where we're calloused by our own sin, where we're abandoning fellow sinners to the darkness rather than being light to them. Because at the very same time, this is an account of our own lives. It's also our appeal. So through our words, through our lives, we plead with those in darkness to awaken, to let Christ shine on you. So may our account fuel our appeal. That this is our story. May we want that for, for others. And may Christ shine on us that as his light we push back and transform what is dark into light. The, I, I would ask you to pray and to, to act in, light, in line with this that the sleepers in our neighborhood would awaken. That the dead in our workplaces and the dead in our schools and the dead in, in the other communities in which we spend time, that they would arise. That Christ's light would shine on them. That remembering our own need for that, remembering what Christ has done for us, would fuel us into the world to be light in the darkness. So we're called to walk in love. We're called to walk in light. Lastly, we're called to walk in wisdom. If we're called to walk in the same kind of love we've received, if we're called to, to walk as children of light, it's going to likewise require that we walk in wisdom. And a few particulars that Paul mentions here. He says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. When Paul says that the, that the days are evil, he's not saying that like, time is inherently evil and there's no way to use time well. 
Uh, actually, there's a, there's a scholar and pastor named Armitage Robinson, which is a great name, by the way. Armitage <laughs> Robinson. Um, I need to get a better name to be a pastor. I've thought that many times recently. He, he, I think, gets at the idea that Paul's getting at here when he says this. That we're called to ransom the time from its evil bondage. Ransom the time from its evil bondage. In other words, the natural gravitation for each of us is to waste time. That's the natural gravitation for each of us. To use it for unprofitable or, or unnecessary or unimportant things. Which ultimately, we don't really want to put these words on it because that makes us uncomfortable. Ultimately, that's actually a gravitation toward evil. We're either doing things that we should not be doing, or, this is the one that's even more deceitful, we're not doing things that we could be and should be doing. The sins of omission, the the acts of mercy and charity and justice that we could be pursuing with that time. So instead, instead of letting things gravitate naturally toward evil, we buy that time back and we use it for good and for profitable things. To walk in love and light, for example. It takes time to walk in love toward other people. It takes time to walk in light, to be present in the darkness so that you can actually be light there. That takes time. So walking in wisdom calls each of us to every single day buy back the moments, buy back the time, and use it for good rather than just allow it to gravitate toward evil. Walking in wisdom also means, what Paul says here, understanding the will of the Lord. And much of understanding God's will is not this impossible mystery that we sometimes make it out to be. Like sometimes when we hear phrases like that, like understand what the will of the Lord is, we, we go to like Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we're like, I need the right medallion with a staff that's the right height at the right time of day in the right place in the room, and if I've got that, then God's will will shine through and show me exactly what I'm supposed to do next. That's that's how we treat God's will sometimes. But really, much of God's will has already been revealed to us in what he has given us to us in his word. So you've got passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So God's will is that you be conformed, you be made like Jesus. Micah 6.8, he has shown you. He's not hidden it from you. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What's God's will? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. So walking in wisdom means that we seek to understand all that God has revealed about his will already so that we can apply all of that to those places when there's no concrete answer given in Scripture. The questions in life about God's will that there is no specific answer, like should I take this job or not? Should I marry this person or not? You know, what, what should I do now? But here's the thing, even in those questions where there is no specific answer, we're not left to ourselves, we're not left without help. We're given the helper himself, the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the thing that Paul says last here. Walking in wisdom means being filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the connection there between alcohol and the Spirit of God is this. It's whose influence are you under? Whose influence are you under? So alcohol influences us. It influences our thoughts, our actions, and influences our words. Um, You can get arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol or other substances. Those are really cheap and counterfeit influences to subject yourselves to. Not that you can't enjoy God's good gifts, but they are cheap and counterfeit influences to subject yourselves to. 
And so instead of that, we're meant to be under the influence of the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit who is the one who who directs our steps. It's the Spirit who gives us words to speak. It's the Spirit who constantly draws our gaze back to Jesus. The Spirit who awakens us to the love of God. And what it looks like to live worthy of that calling. To walk in love. To walk in light. To walk in wisdom. So there's just so much in this text that I've been praying since I started reading it and praying especially this week, like what, what can I say to be most helpful and what can I leave you with that will be most profitable to you this week from Ephesians chapter 5? And I'm just continually brought back to that crescendo in verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So perhaps you're here this morning and you are asleep and you are dead in every sense of those words. Your life feels saturated by darkness. And you hear Paul talk about the sons of disobedience and you're, and you're kind of concerned he's talking about you. I just want to say to you this morning that you are not beyond the mercy and the grace of Jesus. You are not a hopeless case. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you did this morning on your way here or what your life looks like right now, how much of a shipwreck you've made of your life. You are not a hopeless case. Every single child of God, every single adopted son and daughter of the king was once darkness. Not in darkness, the embodiment of darkness themselves. That is the depth at which Christ's mercy comes to rescue us. So would you let his light shine on you? Would you wake up? Would you wake up to that? And would you arise from the dead and become a child of light? If you have a longing that's stirring in you or has been stirring in you for some time, don't don't even leave here today without coming to talk to me or one of our other leaders about that. Let us walk with you in that. Wake up. Come awake. Arise from the dead. Let Christ shine on you. There are a lot of others who are here this morning who have come to believe and to trust in the finished work of Jesus. But perhaps, you know, you hear that story about awakenings or or you, you think about Dr. Sayer's life and you go, yeah, that's me. I'm in a functionally catatonic state when it comes to my relationship with God. I've become dull and desensitized to the love of Jesus. I've become dull and desensitized to my own sin, and maybe even specifically the kinds of sexual sin that Paul is specifically talking about here. Or maybe you've just been lulled to sleep instead of being sent as light into the world. Would you hear from God's word this morning your wake-up call too? Wake up. Wake up and arise from the dead and let Christ shine on you. You already know this. There's something so much more and so much better than living in a functionally comatose state to the things of God. And the offer is held out to you, not just once, but over and over again, wake up. Wake up. So at one time, we were darkness, but now, through Jesus, we are light. So awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, And in all of his grace and in all of his power, Christ will shine on you. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, we confess our slumber and our, and our being desensitized and our being calloused to you in all senses, to your beauty and worth and our need for you, to our sin. Forgive us for living in a functionally catatonic state in so many, so many of the moments of our lives. And we know that you have to do deep work in us to wake us up, but we also see the offer held out for us to come. So would you prompt us this morning to come and to wake up and to arise from the dead that your light would shine on us? Would you wake us up to our sin? Would you wake us up to your mercy that meets us at the depth of that sin? Would you wake us up to the need that there is for us to be light in the darkness in our own neighborhoods and in our own city, in this region, in this world? There's so much darkness in this world. It needs your light, which is us as you transform us and send us into the world. Wake us up. Shine on us. Shine on us. And open our eyes to your beauty and your worth, Jesus. I pray that in your name. Amen. That this table is really a, a tangible and visible picture of the good news of Jesus. That he has given himself, that he has paid the cost.